0: The first early voting returns are here, and there are some shockers. Plus, the Texas border is back in the news because of new spending numbers and approval rates. Students at the University of Houston are fighting back with how their money is being spent. Producer A.K. Al Moman and Pulitzer Prize finalist Evan Mintz join me to recap the news. It's Friday, February 23rd. I'm Rahil Ramzanali, and here's what Houston's talking about. Evan, AK, Happy Go Texan Day. How's everybody doing?
1: Happy Go Texans Day. Is is it a special holiday for the Texans?
0: It's Go Texan Day.
2: You're supposed to dress up in your Texas finest because the rodeo's starting.
0: Oh. Yeah, it's a kickoff for the rodeo. Yeah. AK, I'm so disappointed in you, but we are here. How are you going to celebrate, Evan? You're dressed up nicely. I
2: love it. Oh, thank you. I I just got to say that I love the livestock show and rodeo. I love going. I love bringing my kids. But it's a lie. Like the rodeo is a lie. It was created decades ago by like Houston business boosters because they wanted to help support the meatpacking industry. You know, we're not a city of cowboys. Like we're not out on the open prairie. Houston's a port city. So when I dress up like to celebrate Houston, I dress up like a longshoreman. Like That's what I do. Oh, Okay. (laughs)
1: That's what I do. My entire aesthetic for 2024 has been 1950s dock worker. That's that's the entire aesthetic I'm going for.
0: So basically, the... Houston Rodeo is just Beyonce, just acting like we're country. Yeah. I mean, you know, you've got ranches like further
2: out of the country and like, yeah, we're in Texas, like all that stuff's true, but like we are Beyonce. We decided one day like we're going to do country and you know what? Turns out we're really
0: good at it. Yeah, it's a bob, see? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, we go at the Beehive uh, AK, which by the way, we had a little controversy (laughs) last week. Is it Beehive or Bayhive?
1: Because I've heard both. It was the beehive for a very long time, but something happened and some people now say beehive too, Mm, but it was the beehive, like lemonade era, the yellow colors, all of that, like it felt fitting. Even in the Renaissance tour, take over the world, she dresses up like a bee because the beehive is taking over the world. So it is beehive, but some people call it beehive.
0: Yeah, because I was listening to NPR, they were doing a story about, of course, Beyonce and the country uh, controversy, right, that we talked about last week, and they were referring it to as the Beehive, but on TikTok, everywhere else, I think the accepted one is Beehive. But nonetheless, I just wanted to bring that up. We're going with Beehive, okay?
1: I might not know what Texan's Day is, but I know my Beyonce lore. <laughs>
0: there you go. There you go. AK, since you are back here on CityCast Houston, let's start with you. What was your biggest story of the week?
1: Okay, it relates to Governor Greg Abbott's conflict with the Biden administration and the Supreme Court decision over what's going on in the border, especially with the barbed wire. Where I want to start is the fact that it seems like in the public eye, Greg Abbott is winning the confrontation. Uh, A new, the Texas Politics Project's new polling has shown that Greg Abbott's popularity has surged. Since his stance on the border has been so aggressive, and he has jumped up to fifty-six percent approval, uh, which is the highest it's been since the pandemic for for the governor, and this is in contrast with Biden's popularity over the border specifically dropping, and uh, even some Democrats are supporting Abbott. But I think. The truth is a little bit beyond just the numbers that we're seeing out of the polling. There's a lot of evidence that the Texas State, like National Guard, what they're doing down there is too aggressive of a measure. It is essentially like a king placing a moat with crocodiles in front of their castle to try and prevent everything and anything. There's no nuance, there's no context. There's really not a lot of evidence that we can see that the numbers that are going down at the southern border from Texas's side are going down because of any intentional method. It is just an aggressive, isolationist pushback against everything, whether it's clearly legal asylum seekers, whether it is migrants with uh, family members or needs or the ability to ask for asylum from the places they're coming from. We're not really seeing... The fact that there is any distinction between any of those. So the numbers are going down. Even the the Justice Department and a lot of federal agencies have agreed. Yes, border crossings through Texas, especially where the BART barrier was, is going down. But it's everybody. And it's been a risk. And just to give a little bit of context, Ken Paxton, our, our attorney general, Is using the power of those numbers, using the power of the aggression that the Greg Abbott and Operation Lone Star is proposing to now attack migrant centers inside of the United States, inside of Texas specifically. For instance, he is going after Annunciation House in El Paso saying that the NGO is uh, operating as a stash house and taking part in human smuggling. It's really specific language that is trying to elicit the ideas of human trafficking in people's mind. This accusation only comes from the fact that part of enunciations, uh, things that they offer to migrants is the ability to be transported to other parts of the country so they could be closer to family members or any of that stuff or find work. This is, to me, the biggest issue is the partisan language that gets used and then in reaction what Democrats use is partisan language as well.
0: Yeah, that language has always been something we've talked about and it's just creating so many sparks, right? And it's creating so much unnecessary drama and it's playing out in a way that we shouldn't see it play out, right, Evan?
2: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's frustrating to watch all of this go through because I think, you know, polls show the American people don't like seeing chaos at the border. They don't like seeing undocumented crossing, but attempts to actually fix the problem keep running into politics. You had Democrats and Republicans in the Senate trying to work together on a bill that would put a a lot more power in the hands of the president and more resources at the border to stop people from crossing. And Republicans did not play along, not because they didn't like the bill, but because Trump said, hey, don't do this. It'll hurt me in the election if you give Biden a win. And I remember when you had Republicans like uh, Ted Cruz saying, listen, my politics are pretty straightforward illegal immigration bad, legal immigration good. But that's changed too. When Trump was president, you had Democrats offering uh, a deal where you'd get $25 billion to uh, spend on border uh, hardening. And in exchange, you'd get a path to legalization and citizenship for dreamers. And that got killed because some hardcore Republicans said, well, no, we don't want dreamers either. We want to shrink the number of legal immigrants. That just seems nuts to me. And meanwhile, I've got Paxton going after this Catholic charity in El Paso for doing Catholic charity like that's so bizarre. I, I can't wrap my head around this.
0: Do you want to hear the biggest BS number also this week from the border that just ticks me off? And I'll explain the BS in a second, but Texas has spent over $148 million busing migrants to other parts of the country in that big plan from Governor Greg Abbott. Now, the reason I say this, it's BS, it's because when questioned about this, Ray Perryman, the president of the Waco, Texas-based economic research company, the Perryman Group, said, look, It certainly is a great deal of money to be spent. These dollars, here's the BS part, I hate it when people say this, are not a huge percentage of the overall budget. So it's certainly something (laughs) that could be done. Anytime somebody says that, I'm like, stop, please. Whether it be our national spending, whether it be our state level spending, it's just a small percentage of the budget. Yes, but it's also $148 million coming out of our tax dollars that could be spent on something else. That could be maybe spent on improving the conditions down there. could be spent on improving conditions for Texans around the state. So I just want to bring that number as well.
1: Yeah, and some people would claim that there's an inherent hypocrisy in that. The fact that Ken Paxson is going after, and uh, and Republicans in the Senate and the House are going after nonprofits and NGOs in a specific way because they think that they misappropriate taxpayer dollars, federal spending from the government. And Ken Paxson specifically, after Greg Abbott has spent so many months sending migrants over to other states on our tax dollars is now saying that that method of transporting migrants is now human smuggling. They want to have their cake and eat it too, constantly. Republicans in the state want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to say that they're standing for something while at the same time committing the same type of gray area stuff that they accuse Democrats of constantly doing, and then they hide behind the shield that they are standing up for something bigger than themselves. And this type of rhetoric with no actual plan past the fact that you want to have an indefinite military mobilization out by your border makes no sense and wastes everyone's money and everyone's time. People have been dying at the border. That mom and her, and her kid who drowned at the crossing, it's like, we're now playing with human life at a really severe level.
0: Perfectly said there. We will keep our eye on this. And it's a story that we've talked about a lot and we will continue talking about here on CityCast Houston. Evan, let's get to you. What's your biggest story of the week? Oh, the biggest story of the week is that early voting has started in partisan primaries.
2: And we have some really interesting polling from the University of Houston's Hobby School of Public Policy. Let me run through some of these numbers. Lizzie Fletcher has a commanding lead over Pervez Aguan in the Democratic primary for the 7th Congressional District 78% to 11%. This race has gotten some national coverage. I think folks thought it was competitive because Lizzie was being hit for being too moderate in a recently redrawn district that went from swing to deep blue. You know, folks thought maybe she wasn't a good fit, but the polls show otherwise. Sheila Jackson Lee has a slight lead over challenger Amanda Edwards in the Democratic primary for the 18th congressional district. 43% to 38%, Sheila Jackson Lee lost her mayoral election. Edwards is out raising her, but you should never underestimate the power of incumbency, especially for someone like Lee who shows up everywhere and talks to everyone. In the crowded Democratic primary to replace Mayor Whitmire in the Texas Senate, we've got a close top three, Molly Cook at 18%, state rep Jarvis Johnson at 18%, and Todd Litton at 14%. And Sean Theory, who's been hit by her fellow Democrats for anti LGBT votes and rhetoric, is still leading in her primary over Lauren Simmons, 40 percent to 18 percent. That's pretty big. But here's the bombshell. Sean Tier leads incumbent district attorney Kim Ogg, 59 percent to 21 percent. That is huge to see an incumbent going down like that, especially given that four years ago, Og had no trouble winning over her challengers. So what's been going on? Well, there's been a lot of huge news reports on AUG. Most recently, the Houston Chronicle reported that she failed to bring charges against former Harris County Republican Party Chair Jared Woodfield for stealing from his clients, allegedly. And none of her excuses have really made any sense why charges weren't brought. There's also been the story about how she surreptitiously hired Rachel Hooper, a state Republican lawyer, to help investigate County Judge Lena Hidalgo. There have also been questions about how she changed the intake process that's led to bad cases being charged. And she flip-flopped her position on misdemeanor bail reform, though admittedly that happened a while ago. But after a while. All these stories start to build up and the Democratic voters who brought her into office are pretty disgruntled. And so we're going to see what happens on Election Day. You know, it's the only poll that really matters. But numbers like this are shocking.
1: I've been having this conversation a lot. There's always, whenever we get into an election, there's this hope that things are going to swing so massively and somehow a big portion of the state or the major cities are going to flip something. But it seems like from the polling you're giving us, Evan, it seems like the truth seems to constantly be that most even Democratic Texans feel like a moderate strategy works a lot better for their interests than to somehow, even when the districts have been redrawn to their side, to go explosively progressive. I think Whitmire was like pretty big piece of evidence uh, winning the mayoralship, being such a moderate, being described by a lot of progressives as like a center-right guy. But I feel like the appetite seems to be for like a moderate representation and not pushing too hard. Do you feel like that is that is kind of the sentiment?
2: I think that a lot of voters are moderate. I think that's part of it. Uh, You know, Texas is still a Republican state and even the Democrats are probably further to the right than Democrats in other states. And this idea that if you just get out there and gin up turnout, there's a whole bunch of secret progressive voters out there. I just don't think that's necessarily true. And I think the massive turnout we had in 2020 Uh, showed that because, you know, you had so many voters, I heard Democrats saying they expected to win just when you hit that number. Turns out a lot of uh, people who don't usually turn out are Republicans too. Uh, But even in the Democratic primary, I think in that Lizzie Fletcher race, something that you've got to point out, is that Perez uh, has not been a good candidate. He's had his own scandals. Sort of anecdotally, in a personal level, he sometimes rubs people the wrong way. You know, Lizzie Fletcher tries really hard to be sort of low drama, uh, you know, not to pick fights, you know, and when they do happen, she tries to stay out of it. And she's got a whole lot of people on her side because of that. Uh, I think that sometimes the secret to winning a race isn't necessarily to be, you know, more progressive or less progressive. It's just to be a person who people like. And people trust. And that's sometimes hard to pull off.
0: And don't forget, Election Day is coming up March 5th, but you still have time to vote in early voting time. So get that done. Get out there right now. Don't wait. The lines are super short. So, you know, go knock that out while you have some time. Okay, my biggest story of the week, and I'm gonna quickly run through this mike miles it's time to talk about some hisd news i wish we had like a sounder for that (laughs) hisd news because there's something every week and this week it is the new report released by mike miles on the inefficiencies in hisd and the reason he's pointing us out is trying to free up some money to get more schools on the new education system plan up to 100 of them some of the highlights include $20 million on buses that were never used the report states that previously the district spent more than 300 million on professional and contracted services which is estimated to be about 9% of the total expenditures the next budget will cut approximately 50 million in those contracted services to save costs also HISD administrators are set to review contracts over over two hundred fifty thousand dollars to ensure they are aligned with the district action plan, or see if they have failed to achieve established goals. Also, from now on, the finance department will review contracts over five hundred thousand, and the board of managers must approve any contracts over one million dollars. So this is all to find out where this money is going to save some money in the long run as well. And this is coming from the Houston Chronicle. And one part of the story that I really want to point out is overall, Miles didn't relay how much the changes and cuts are expected to help in the district funds. But he says the fixes would keep HISD above an $850 fund balance. And this is, again, from the Houston Chronicle, which the story is in our show notes, by the way, if you want to learn more about this report. So Mike Miles coming in finally has this new inefficiency budget report that everybody's waiting for.
1: I'm hoping that beyond just the pinpointing, the, the, the criticism, which I feel like we might be still too early in the process, but I, I wonder how it's going to end up from, from a relationship perspective. Will Texas Education take on some of the responsibility of trying to correct these things, or will they drop it at the feet of the new directors that they put in at HISD to kind of just like, hey, here's your time limit, you have to figure it out. And if there isn't that level of cooperation, I don't know how we don't go back to the same mess we have been in.
0: Yeah, that's going to be the interesting thing is All these changes that are being made by Mike Miles, once he leaves and the original board of directors are back in or if there's a new election for them, I don't know how that's gonna work. I haven't researched that. Yeah, what will they do? Are they gonna come in and just be like, okay, bye. (laughs) Like, we actually don't (laughs) like these changes, so that is something to watch out for. But we'll see how this budget plan is put into play and exactly what changes are made because a report is a report, but action, that's where it really matters. A.K. Let's get to your most overlooked story.
1: I think the housing crisis in general has been has been one of those things where uh, where it ebbs and flows in importance in a lot of ways. But it seems like the Whitmire uh, City Council is trying to take a major step. Uh, they just approved or supported the. The proposal of 17 affordable housing uh, projects that the 17 developers are essentially going to be vying for that tax credit cut. That I think it's nine percent. Uh, this is interesting because on most years, city council only approves about seven or eight of these projects. Uh, There have been projects that dropped, so it's not like a kumbaya, everyone gets a little piece of this pie type of thing. A couple of projects has dropped because of the rigorous metric that city council has used to kind of weigh who gets their support specifically. And it seems like the formula dwindles down to Goldilocks, uh, the perfect type of porridge. They claim that affluent neighborhoods have too much density in them. And so they're not conducive for big affordable housing projects and low income neighborhoods uh, don't have enough of the amenities to produce it. Uh, And so they have to really pinpoint in these middle areas, these open areas that can have these affordable housing projects. So a couple of projects in Kingwood dropped uh, off and then District C and G apparently have no development projects in them because they're two of the most affluent ones. I don't know if this strategy like will 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 prove to be successful because you're really hammering in or you're really fixating on a very specific subset of the economic pie of neighborhoods in Houston and in the Houston metro area and it leaves out other areas from getting any development building any houses right now will will allow us to kind of have people be able to move in, add to the economy, regulate things. But uh, yeah, so it seems like that's, I feel like that's very overlooked that we're just looking at this like Goldilocks formula and whatever can fit into that peg is the thing that will get the biggest support. Evan, I know you have thoughts on this one.
2: I have a lot of thoughts and I just know that, you know, the research shows that you want to put affordable housing in affluent neighborhoods, particularly for families with young kids, because when those young kids go to school with higher income peers, their outcomes become better. They basically match the outcomes of those higher income peers. But I just want to say next week monday tuesday wednesday in austin is the yimby town conference yes in my backyard to talk about the policies we need to be able to build more housing more affordable housing but more housing of any kind because it's a big market and if you don't build housing for wealthy people they're just going to buy up housing further down that path and it's going to push out other folks building anything is good Houston has a reputation for building a lot of housing, which we do. We don't have zoning. We don't have a lot of other regulations. But there's other red tape that city council could be cutting that would just make it easier to build housing of any kind and would make these debates about specific target affordable housing less controversial and, frankly, less important. Evan, what are some of the red tapes? Parking minimums, we don't need them. The city requires new housing in certain neighborhoods to have a certain number of parking spots. If you don't want parking spots, you shouldn't have to build them. Setback requirements, you have to put any building 25 feet back from the street. That's a whole lot of wasted space. Even in new transit-oriented development places, it has to be 15 feet. Maybe you don't want to build your home like that or your business like that. You shouldn't have to. There's also uh, other regulations based around city enforcement of deed restrictions. You know Some of those restrictions may be unnecessary. They may be harmful to new development. The city should be taking a critical look at how it helps private neighborhoods enforce those.
0: Okay, my most overlooked story is another budget story. Have y'all been keeping up with what's happening at the University of Houston and the students protesting how much of their money is going to the athletic program because it is getting juicy out there and there are protests happening. So I'm gonna break it down basically as best as I can and as quickly as I can because I can't wait to get y'all's thoughts on this. So currently, students fund about $8 million to athletics but there's $4 million, which is earmarked for stadium debt deal that can't be touched, okay? So that leaves about $4.4 million that go to the athletic program. The Student Fees Advisory Committee wants Renew Couture to say, hey, can we reduce this please by 1.5 million so we can get some money for other services like mental health. Now, the university is already reducing their athletic spending by $22 million over the next two years. So they're like, wait, we actually don't have that much money for athletics, and we kind of need this uh, $4.4 million right now. So they are going back and forth. There have been protests, and this is getting heated right now because students are not happy that the University of Houston is taking their money, giving it to the athletic program, which should be funded in other manners as well. Now, some universities do use a lot more money of the student fees and um, tuition to fund their athletic program, but the University of Houston is actually one of the lower ones, and students are like, we don't care, okay? Th- this is our money. Let's put this in correct places because we don't have enough resources for what we need. This is fascinating because we know athletics are important to colleges, and I know the University of Houston has been pushing to get to the Big 12. They finally were in the are in the Big 12, and now they're saying, wait, hold on. Now that we're here, we need more money, guys, so can we figure this out?
2: I think Texas just needs to give more money to our universities. We've got a huge surplus right now. Giving money to university for anything is investment in the future. And frankly, you know, there is a tie between that sort of athletic success and getting more people wanting to pay attention to university, apply to university, make it be a fun place uh, to live and to learn. Uh, But uh, in terms of students protesting, I'm always in support of students protesting over anything, no matter how ridiculous. You no, know, the the uh, the protests are so heated on campuses because the stakes are so low.
0: We can't figure out one point five million dollars like Tillman Fertitta could easily <laughs> just be like, here, here's the one point five. OK, we'll figure this out. Students go. You can have some stuff, too, as well. We can make this work. But one point five million dollars for a top tier university. Come on.
1: I feel like athletic spending for universities, especially after NIL now, and the resurgence of of support for college athletics over the professional side, I feel like the equivalent of defense spending. You always have an argument for why you need to spend more to keep it going, uh, but it always feels like it's taking over everything else that you might want to do on a campus, I think uh, the University of Houston has been trying really hard to stake its claim as Houston's forefront, and they've had some really surprise athletic success and they wanna keep that momentum going. But at the end of the day, they do have, I am an alumni of the University of Houston. We do have some infrastructure that is barely existent over there, whether it goes to mental health or arts programs or any type of recreational ability for students other than athletics. And so it is a really hard debate, but uh, I kind of understand the want to have something different on campus. Uh, but when you're competing on the scale, when you're trying to become like the next Michigan or the next UT, or you're trying to compete with those schools, you really have to take kind of a singular approach towards like, we are an almost an athletic school now. Uh, And and it's a really hard balance to do.
0: All right, let's end it on a high note. Gentlemen, Evan, give me your moment of joy. My moment of joy is one of karma. The gods of
2: urbanism are a vengeful lot in Houston this week. Mayor (laughs) Whitmire's plan to tear out safe street design at Washington and Houston has been plagued by a broken water main and a gas leak. Mm. What's next? Frogs and locusts, I bet. <laughs> but really, this shows why you need to have a little bit of a neighborhood conversation. You need to have some planning before you spend any money ripping out something that we already spent money to install. This whole thing seems like a big kerfuffle. And I hope that Mayor Whitmire, whom I've generally supported, you know, learns his lesson from this
0: yeah it's wild how this has worked out so far in that first major move and everything's going wrong
1: (laughs) (laughs) this is the pettiest moment of joy (laughs) oh man ak how about you what's your moment of joy my moment of joy is that recently i've had a real nice taste for uh, the fine dining experiences in houston and i feel like a lot of chefs are doing some really incredible work in Houston, and it deserves to get a little more recognition. From Titmo to Lucille to Zochi, I have been really enjoying the experience of seeing people bring their ethnic uh, cuisine. And Zochi has been my most recent experience, and I just wanna prime you. All that I know it sounds gross, but I promise you it's really good. A lot of zochi's items, and they have it split off in a separate menu, have insects in them. And so that is that is a, a part of Latin cuisine that I think it's really brave to try and bring it to Houston, a place where Tex-Mex is so dominant. Uh, and it's been successful. When we went, the entire restaurant was full. Zochi's always on the top, like, list of restaurants in the city. Their ant mole on their ribeye steak is fantastic. I totally recommend it. It's a great experience. So give it a try.
0: I like that. Can we just text mex all the insect recipes? Like, let's just get some fried grasshoppers. Throw some queso on it. Woo! Yeah, let's get the text (laughs) backs. That's the way to do it. Now, that sounds really good. And uh, look at you, Mr. Fine Dining. Ooh, the top, the Mm -hmm. 1% live differently, Evan.
2: Yeah, no, that's some nice stuff. I'm eating, you know, fish sticks and mac and cheese over here.
1: Okay, okay. What type? It's a once in a. Okay,
0: okay. (laughs) You know, we're
2: teasing. I feel called down. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, those are good restaurants. (laughs)
0: Okay, my moment of joy. I know we don't like lists because lists are just clickbait at times, but the company Apartment List named Houston as the fourth best city for Black professionals, taking into account factors like business environment, which we came in at number three, community and representation, which we came in at number four, economic opportunity, which we came in at number 10. And here's the one that is not good, housing opportunity, which came in at number 21. So we were named a number four cities, ahead of us. DC was number one. Atlanta was number two. San Antonio came in at number three. So a little less than half, which is about 44% of all black Houston households are spending over 30% of their income on housing, which has increased 2% since 2019. And that's regarding that number 21 finish in the housing opportunity category. Here's another stat that I want to talk about. The community is well represented in some critical occupations. 20% of teachers are black as are 21% of doctors Houston is also home to one of the great HBCUs, Texas Southern University, which helps the job market when the median black income is several thousand dollars above average. So, really cool to see that, good to see that, you know, we are number 4, but you know, there's always room for improvement, but good to see that we are doing okay right now when it comes to black professionals. Yo, that's dope. AK Evan, that was a lot of fun. Enjoy the rest of your Go Texan day. And next week, Rodeo Week starts here on CityCast Houston. We've got a lot of great episodes. I'm so excited for y'all to hear it. Shout out to our sponsors, Tacova's, for Rodeo Week next week. And you've already seen my pictures on Hey Houston. If you haven't subscribed and go find those pictures, you see me all decked out in Tacova's gear. So I'm pumped. It's going to be a lot of fun. Evan, AK, enjoy the rodeo if you're going. And thank you for joining us.
1: Thank
2: you. I'm going. Talk to y'all next time.
0: That was Evan Mintz and a.k.a. Al Moment. All the stories we discuss are linked in our show notes. That will do it for this week here on CityCast Houston. Our producers are Carlyon Jones, Lizzie Goldsmith, and AK Al Moment. Our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis, and the host is me, Rahil Ramzanali. Our music is by the band All The Kimonos. We'll be back on Monday with the best tips to conquer the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo as we kick off Rodeo Week on CityCast Houston. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new.